Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting remotely with my co-host, Aaron Cameron. I'd like to welcome to the podcast today, Rolly Van Dyke. He is the Director of Market Analytics for CoStar Canada. Welcome to the show, Rolly. Thank you for having me. So it's worth mentioning that this is Rolly's first appearance in the podcast, but we have had CoStar on before. Matt Papau was one of our first 10 guests you know, a number of years ago, and Rolly's coming here to do, I guess, a follow-up on how CoStar might have changed, but then more importantly, how what the data is saying about COVID-19. But Rolly, to start off, though, we always want to understand you know, how you got to the illustrious position of being on a podcast. So if you can kind of give us your background and how you got to where you are, it, uh, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again for having me. So my background, I mean, I've been in real estate in general for about 15 years now. I started right out of you know urban planning. I was doing some planning work on the residential side throughout the GTA, doing planning and project management work for a lot of the residential developers. From there, I transitioned over to commercial real estate through CBRE, which a lot of us go through that channel. I started on the national research team at CBRE. I was a senior analyst there before I got promoted to the national director of market analytics for CBRE. At that point, I did an MBA in real estate, worked at CBRE for about just shy of 10 years. And then when CoStar decided to officially set up shop in Canada back in 2016, I got asked to come on over to to CoStar and help set up their research platform and then launch the market analytics team for CoStar here in Canada. So I've been at CoStar for almost four years now. Which for is our listeners, all, yeah, <laughs> almost all of CoStar's existence here. Yeah, yeah, yeah literally. <laughs> yeah, and let's do that real quick. You know, Roly, let's talk about just what is CoStar, who are CoStar, kind of what's their business? So yeah, CoStar, we're an American company. We've been in business for about 34 years. We started up basically to create transparency for the commercial real estate market in North America. Once we decided to, to open up in Canada, it was about 2010, we started focusing on the major markets here. and essentially looking to provide that same transparency for the Canadian market. A lot of our clients in the U.S., institutional investors, were were asking for the same product here in Canada. And what we're able to provide is information on the property level, obviously a market and sub-market level, and look at leasing availability information, sales availability information, lease comps, sale comps, tenant stacking plans in the buildings. And with all that data, we were able to package it up and provide you with proper analytics for, again, the market, the sub-market level, but also looking at specific portfolios. So we do our forecasts and our historical data on a building-by-building basis, and that allows us to essentially cut to you know a 10-building portfolio or 10 comparable buildings that you're looking at, and you can run a complete history and forecast for those buildings, really creating a lot of transparency on the deal side. I think, and Adam's a, Adam, you're a user pretty regularly, so you can attest to the value. I mean, First National's been a client of CoStars for a number of years now. And I've you know, i been toured, I've been fortunate enough to tour your office and seen some of the technology you have. You know, there's, there's one individual, uh, there's kind of a tangent, but there's one guy that's got you know, like eight big screens up on a huge wall with all these cars. And I think, I mean, I'm probably 
not doing this justice, but his job effectively is to make sure that the cars are going around and double checking every single commercial real estate asset in that jurisdiction. So, you know, it's, there are no holes as far as I'm concerned, right? Every single piece of commercial real estate that has some sort of commercial component, whether it's apartments to retail to industrial to whatever it may be, is in there. You've got all the, I mean, as much as you possibly can, all of the lease information, construction dates, you know, everything and everything, the owners, all that kind of stuff. It's really, really powerful data. Well, and there's, also, uh, there's also the, the co-star plane that flies around over top of cities and snaps photos. It's quite an operation. Which yeah, we were absolutely. supposed to get, uh, another tangent, we were supposed to get a, a flight, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We were supposed to get a ride in that plane. Yeah. But it was a really windy day one day and they, got, they ended up taking the plane back to the US. We never got a chance. Yeah. I got to go up in the plane in Toronto and Vancouver, incidentally. I was in both cities when the plane was in town. And it's really cool. I mean, you don't generally get to fly so low and really get a good look at the city. And really, the purpose of it isn't just to take up clients, which is a nice little thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it's a perk. <laughs> but it's a perk. But the big deal for it is, I mean, you mentioned that we do our research on a census level basis and as opposed to sampling. So we're trying to get full inventory. So that guy who has all the screens, he runs our field research team and he's making sure that the field research, which we have about 15 in Canada, are really going building by building and checking out what's available, what's there on a regular basis. And the plane flies by, like you said, twice a year really to look for construction projects and stuff like that. We also recently brought in a drone pilots. So our field researchers now train drone pilots and they basically take amazing pictures. And they're right now when the cities are virtually shut down, they are getting phenomenal footage of the cities and the buildings that are going into our database for our clients to use. But they also use you know, all sorts of technology on those drones to see heat leakage out of roofs and so forth. So it's it's really quite interesting. Yeah, even to the point I remember they were talking about how, you know, the pictures are so important that you'll take notes that the sun's better, you know, in the afternoon. So go back and take the picture in the afternoon because that's a better angle with the sunlight on that particular asset. Really, really interesting stuff. So really, let's transition a little bit into your role and what it is that you do for CoStar. Yeah. So our team on the market analytics side is really trying to decipher all the information that's in the database, marry it up with the econometric model. So we use a company called Oxford Economics to get our economic forecast. And we're marrying all this together to really come up with a really good idea of what's going on in the markets, explain what's happened, why it happened, what's going to happen. Hopefully we'll try and do that right now. It's, it's exceedingly difficult, but what's going to happen and what is driving those changes. So you know, right now we have a relatively small team here in Canada, but the, the analyst team across North America is about 75 to 80 analysts, economists, and senior economists. And that's really a big part of our job is making sure that the reports that are in CoStar, which our clients have access to the market and submarket reports, are updated on a regular basis. And what I mean by that is the actual data in the graphs and all the data that populates those reports, it's constantly being updated each and every day, about every 20 minutes, they're constantly updating that information with the 12,000 database changes that our research team does every day into the platform. So with that, as you can imagine, we have text that coincides with the graphs. And every morning, my team gets a list of changes that happen, material changes that resulted in vacancy rate, rental rate growth changes that may not be reflected properly in the text anymore. So every day we go in there and update that text to basically make sure that it reflects what's in the graph. And if we spot an issue with that data in the graphs, we can then go back to the research team and, and go through and work together and find out what the issue is. So it's constant updates and reiterations of the existing reports. And that way, 
you don't have to wait until the end of a quarter for a new report to come out. You don't have to wait until a month after the end of the quarter to get your forecast for that submarket. It's all there live every day, all day. So what is the what are the forecasts telling you? Again, I know it's like you said, it's exceedingly difficult. So let's start with that. Oh, by the way, April, it's Monday, April 13th today. So just we're date stamping these so that when people listen to them, they know kind of the context with which we're talking about. So middle of April now, we're a month into quarantine. Dust has settled a little bit, right? We went through the April rent collection issues. You know, there's some clarity about how long this is going to last, right? We know it's not a couple of weeks. We know it's a couple of months. And where is the commercial real estate world now? What are your statistics kind of indicating is going to transpire over the next couple of months? Why don't we pick an asset class? Let's start with one asset and move the way through. Pick one. I don't know. Whatever your least favorite is, and we'll work your way towards your favorite asset class. Well, I don't know if there's a least favorite or potentially an easier one to start with. Okay. Pick an um, easy one. Let's start with office. Well, we might as well delve into that one. If and, it was if it was going to be apartments, we were going to kick you off the podcast. But that's that's our, <laughs> our, our personal favorite is apartment lender. So I'm glad you picked so I chose office. well. Good, yes, good. that was a test. <laughs> and I think any discussion with any of these asset types really has to start with the the base assumptions that we have about where the economy is going, right? And the good news is we've actually, since mid-March, we've updated our forecast twice because, A, I mean, things are just moving so fast and we're just trying to fine-tune what's going on here, right? And ultimately, I think a few key assumptions in the economic forecast I'll set out in front. And again, this is April 13th. Those will, will change rapidly as we go through April. But the first one is that the big pandemic and all the closures are going to start resolving at some point in May, maybe early June, okay? So once you get past that and the, the economy starts opening up again, then you start seeing the you know, commercial real estate and really you know, what's happening on that side of things. So on the office side, first and foremost, if you're looking at you know, a market like Vancouver or Toronto or Ottawa, Kitchener-Waterloo, I mean, these markets, they went into this downturn with really good, strong fundamentals meaning the vacancy rates were low, rental growth was relatively strong. And as a result, you know, well, not as a result, but there was decent demand as well for space, you know, tech companies, finance, insurance, real estate, those types of sectors were driving demand, professional scientific and technical services. And these were, you know, strong companies looking for space, kicked off a ton of new construction activity in in a market like Toronto and Vancouver. And as we always do, we entered the downturn with a ton of construction activity underway and a ton of deliveries expected. So the concern, even before the coronavirus pandemic, was that all this new supply was just going to capsize the market. And prior to the pandemic, our expectation was, yes, vacancy rates were going to go up. Surprise, right? We're building a ton of new space, so vacancy has to go up as a result. Just because but we don't- from an, right now, it's at an unhealthily low exactly. level, and you're exactly. really it's just going to stabilize to a healthy, a normal, a normal vacancy level. Right. And yeah. if you have a market like Vancouver, that's sitting at approximately 3% vacancy rate, the expectation was that it was going to double. So, you know, the headline is, oh, vacancy is going to double in Vancouver. It's like, yeah, but it's going from 3 to 6%, guys. Like, let's get a grip here. This is probably healthier at 6% than it was at 3% because there are just no opportunities for tenants. You're seeing rent growth run amok and it's creating problems on that side. So this is probably, at that point, it's creating a, a healthier market. Now, with the coronavirus pandemic settling in, there's a, a few things that come out of that. So one is, you're going to see, you know, there's going to be some trouble for some tenants. I mean, without a doubt, there's going to be some pain. Some tenants are potentially going to go out of business. That may be the case. But by and large, a lot of companies have been able to utilize technology and make that pivot to work from home. 
relatively painlessly, right? So we expect that if this is two months tenure of work from home, things might be that companies will be doing okay as they come back into the workforce as everyone comes back into the office. Now, the question is, how will they come back into the office? Is everyone going to come at once? Probably not. You're probably going to see a phased approach, staggered return to the office. And that's for two reasons. One, you don't want to bring everyone back to the office. Somebody gets coronavirus, you have to send everyone home again. That's probably not a good idea. So that's the first reason why you're going to stagger people in. But number two, companies are rethinking their workplace strategy. I mean, for years now, we've been increasing the density of our office space. I mean, we went from 250 square feet per person on average 15 years ago down to less than 150 square foot per person in a market like Toronto and Vancouver. So that's really tight. And yes, there were you know benefits of open offices and getting people closer together. You have more collaboration and as a result, more productivity. But you're starting to hear people complain about that, those tight-knit quarters for a while now, you know, too many distractions. Somebody gets sick and it just, you know, goes like wildfire down the aisle. And that's a huge concern now going into a post-coronavirus workspace is you don't want someone to get sick and, you know, go fly down the aisle and everyone gets sick. So what you're probably going to see is companies rethinking that workplace strategy, you know, more space per employee, spacing out those desks a little bit more. And what does that mean for commercial real estate demand? So they can go about it in two ways. One, they can allow more people to work from home. We've, we've just gone through or we're currently in this huge experiment of work from home for everybody. And granted, you know, people in, in some aspects are probably not as productive. Some people are even more productive. So it's, you know, a fine balancing act. So you're probably going to see more companies allowing an increased work from home type workspace. In addition to that, the people that are going to be in the office that, like I said, they're going to have to space out the desks. You can't immediately add more space to your floor plate in the building or take more space on your lease tomorrow. So the way to do that is to take some of that common space in the office, maybe uh, space out the desks into that. So there will be you know, a way for them to do things in the short term. And then if they still need space in the long term, then they can start looking at larger spaces on renewal or, or setting up another office or what have you. You know, it's interesting. I've been hearing people say, oh, with this whole work from home thing, you know, companies are going to start being 50% work from home, 50%, you know, work in the office. It's going to have sort of an opposite of effect of where all of a sudden you're going to need, you know, even if you are expanding, going to, let's say, 200 square feet per person, you're still not going to have the need for as much office space because they got everyone working from home. I've done a soft poll of our staff. We've got, you know, call it 160 people in the commercial real estate world. I think there might be like five people that actually are enjoying this, right? The other 155 <laughs> people just can't stand it. Can't wait to get yeah. back into the office and get back into the sort of normal routine. So I don't know if that this, I mean, this work from home thing, it's good and we can do it. It's nice that we've proven it, but I don't think that there's going to be this huge wave where all of a sudden, you know, you can call it a quarter of all office workers are now set up to work from home, you know, full time. Do you have a sense of that? I mean, that's, so, that's, that's such a, it's so tough to put your finger on it, right? But no, it absolutely is tough to put a finger on that. And, and I think that is a big question mark. But like you said, I mean, a lot of people, they like the idea of having the option to work from home every now and then, but maybe not all the time. So there's still going to need to be some space dedicated to these people that are coming in and out. Maybe they work from home a few days a week, what have you. Are you really going to, is management really going to sit down and set up a schedule saying, okay, you know, Bob is coming in on Monday and Wednesday and Jill is Tuesday and Thursday and, oh, they have to switch days. You guys have yeah, to. Or, yeah. You, you show up and it's like, sorry, we're full. Go yeah, home. we're full. Yeah. Go home. So, you know, there's going to have to be some extra space specifically for those people that are coming in and out, you know, some hoteling space perhaps, but 
The other question is, you know, with a lot of these companies that have gone to the telling type space in the office, you're going to need more cleaning of those spaces on a daily basis to make sure that they're super clean. And that's something that you've already seen co-working companies really implement is scrubbing down that space because nobody wants to be in someone else's workspace anymore just because of, you know, germs. <laughs> well, on that topic, how do you think that, you know, WeWork's going to come out of this? Or other co-working yeah. you know, entities? Co-working in general, I mean, when you start looking at some of these companies that may dip into their common space in order to house some of these desks, there may be some demand for more meeting spaces. So co-working type spaces that offer perhaps meeting space will do okay. I think if your only benefit right now is socialization for people, that's probably not the best business plan right now. So there will be some pain there that I think they do need to rethink the way that they space out their floor plans on the co-working side. And if there's enough social distancing there, then you may start that will work for them. But I imagine the more you space people out in there, that changes the pro forma for the business a lot. I mean, with the amount that they're paying for rent and the amount that they expected in revenue will definitely be down. So that's, I think, co-working, you know, the, the ones that are able to provide some of this meeting space for companies that no longer have the meeting space in office, they'll probably do okay. The ones that are predominantly just there for, you know, open office collaboration, being around other people. They're the ones that are going to have to rethink what they're doing. And, and that's where you might see some pain. Yeah, I worry. Sorry, Rolly. I worry that they can't oh. survive. I mean, like if you think about WeWork, they're the easiest one to pick on. But lots of them right. are like this where, you know, if I was a WeWork member, I've canceled that membership a month ago. Like they're not generating any revenue, right? Like their right. whole business right. model is based on people paying monthly fees. But I just, I worry that, you know, they're on such a crazy expansion plan. And now all of a sudden, every single office around the world is just sitting there empty, generating zero revenue for them. If this lasts three, four, maybe five months, hopefully not, knock on wood. You know, yeah. you wonder if they've got the reserves to keep the lights on, so to speak. Right, right. I guess that's the uh, the double-edged sword is, while it's easily scalable up, it's also easily scalable down. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Found out. Yeah. Not ideal. Yeah. Not ideal, to say the okay, least. Okay, which asset class next? Well, I think before going into another asset class, I'd probably mention that another issue for, for the office side is construction activity, right? So, oh, yeah, 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 please go. Yeah, when you're looking at all this space that's under construction, like we talked about, there are delays in construction right now in the projects that are underway. I mean, because of sites being shut down by governments or in, and just overall delays. And then you look at, you know, some of these proposed projects, they're being kicked down the, the road a little bit because you can't start anything off right now. And it's probably prudent to take a little bit of a wait and see approach to it, right? At least that's what your financer is probably going to tell you. So at that point, you're kicking new supply down the line as well. So when the economy starts picking up later this year and potentially demand starts picking up next year, we actually see the construction projects being delayed, creating an odd effect that long-term vacancy rate for some of these markets like Vancouver and Toronto is going to be lower because we're not building enough in that forecast period. It's actually less space that we're building. So it's actually having a strange impact this coronavirus. Everyone expects the, the long-term vacancy to be a little bit higher. We're actually seeing it potentially being a little lower because you know demand is going to move around here and there. You'll probably see if you didn't have any new supply, you'd probably, new supply wasn't part of the equation, you'd probably see vacancy rates moving up even more. But because we're going to have less new supply in the forecast period, it's come down ever so slightly. So again, you're probably still going to see vacancy rates sub 6% in Vancouver in 2024. And similarly in Toronto, just over 6%. So, and these are obviously base case scenarios. I mean, you can yeah, throw in some worst case scenarios that look a little uglier. <laughs> we don't get that dark on this podcast, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. 
So does that cover uh, offices adequately? Do you think really? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Okay. So Unless yeah. you guys want to talk about Calgary. No, I was going to make a joke about Calgary. Let's talk about office. Never mind. Let's just leave it. Okay. Well, let's just do, let's move to industrial. That's where my brain sure. goes next. So sure. Well, how is, I mean, and we kind of talked offline. So let me set it up for you, Rolly. We talked kind of just about, you know, this deglobalization that's kind of going on right now and how, you know, there's supply chains, international supply chains seem to be kind of breaking down a little bit. So do you have a sense of how long or if that's going to have an impact on our industrial market? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, there's there's some concerns about where we're getting our stuff from. And when you look at some of the geopolitical issues, you know, some countries are blocking exports of certain equipment, personal protective uh, equipment and so forth. And it really starts raising those questions about where you're sourcing your materials and your product from. Will you be able to get it the next time there's, I mean, God forbid, coronavirus too, or, or any other thing that impacts your supply chain. So we actually think that you know, this is going to create a little bit of a manufacturing boom. I mean, I don't think everyone's going to bring all their manufacturing back to Canada all at once, but definitely some people are going to rethink their supply chains, bring back some of that manufacturing, even if it's just for, you know, critical equipment and what have you. So that creates another avenue for demand on the industrial side. Having said that, clearly there's, you know, like the the office discussion, there's going to be those issues and some of those companies that are going to suffer throughout coronavirus, the closures and what have you. Specifically, I mean, we're delaying construction, so there's going to be some a little bit of pain there. Your companies that really support bricks and mortar retail, clearly there's going to be some pain there. So, the, you know, the industrial market is not going to get out of this unscathed, but they're going to do okay when you start looking at where the other side of the demand equation is. And when you see a lot of these companies that service the e-commerce fulfillment, and we know e-commerce is going gangbusters right now. And it's been driving the industrial market for years. And it's probably going to pick up pace as people convert more to e-commerce than bricks and mortar retail. I mean, right now we are. We know e-commerce has been growing faster than regular retail. And that's probably going to intensify because of coronavirus. So you have these two things on the demand side, the e-commerce fulfillment, grocery fulfillment. You have potential boom in manufacturing that's going to need to take up space to just manufacture, but also to store the supplies and to store the finished goods on both sides of that, as well as companies just looking at perhaps stockpiling some more of their products, some more of their supplies, moving away slightly from that just-in-time delivery to ensure that you know if something else like this happens, that they can get through that unscathed. So you're probably seeing a little bit more on the demand side as well. And then going back to the discussion of construction, that is the same topic that we're having here for industrial. I mean, yeah, you're going to see a slowdown of demand right now. Demand's going to pick back up later this year, next year. At least that's what we're expecting. That's what the economic forecasts are expecting. So when it picks back up and you've canceled all these projects, I mean, you have Toronto with a vacancy rate of 1.4% in industrial. We need new supply. We need it bad. And we're slowing down projects. We're delaying projects. So when that demand comes back, there's not going to be enough supply to really provide for these tenants. So what we have is rent growth that last year was about 16% for the GTA. It's gone down to about 13% in Q1. We expect that to actually go down close to zero later this year before jumping back up next year because the tenants come back in the game and there's not enough new supply for them. When you put that out over you know a four or five year forecast, that intensifies a bit because you've missed a few quarters of new supply. And, and our forecast assumes that vacancy in a market like Toronto is going to be about 2% in four years. 
assuming that we're delivering 2 million square feet of new supply every quarter. We're not delivering 2 million square feet of new supply every yeah. quarter because of land constraints, but we're also not delivering 2 million square feet of new supply right now because projects are delayed. So that creates that issue on the supply side. Going that's, that's an interesting one. Everybody's trying to you know, hypothesize on you know, what changes when we come out of this on the other side, however long it lasts. And I, I bet you, my instinct is that one of the things that, that changes is we've all become accustomed to ordering things online now, like groceries. I mean, I know Adam's wife loves when the grocery truck pulls up, right? I know my wife, you know, she's got to put her phone away, stop buying things online. And I have a sense that we will change our habits and those habits won't revert back to the old way when we come back. Like there's just, there'll be no need for me to go to Walmart you know, yeah. once a week. I'm going to go once a month, you know, by accident almost. Everything else is going to be <laughs> pre-ordered and it's going to come on a schedule. And I, so you think about the fulfillment, the impact that has on fulfillment on the last mile industrial, all that, like that demand, I think is going to be really, really strong on the back end of sort of this COVID experiment we're in, social yeah. experiment. And there's two sides to that, right? I mean, you're talking about, you know, people that are already buying online and now they're just upping their online purchases at the expense of bricks and mortar. But when I think about my father, I mean, he's 75 years old. He's never bought anything online prior to COVID-19. And he's online now buying stuff because he just doesn't want to go around to the grocery store. And he's like, you know what? This is actually pretty easy. I like- yeah, no, that's it. Yeah, there's, there's, there's so, going to be a whole group of people that never ordered online. Now that's just yeah. becomes normal process for them. And I don't think it's going to revert back. That's not the kind of thing you just say, okay, well, no more online ordering. COVID's over, right? Exactly. And the, and the room for growth in e-commerce is massive. I mean, it's funny, you always read about you know, the Amazon effect and you kind of assume that uh, online or e-commerce had taken over the bulk of retail. But you look at the annual numbers, I mean, it's single digit in terms of the entire universe, but it'll be really right. interesting to see when it gets a, a major foothold, what that does to yeah, you, you our just, landscape. You'd assume that growth curve is amplifying, right? So, yeah. And that, I mean, that's probably brings us to where, you know, where we're looking at on the retail side of things. and. When you think about where retail was, I mean, office industrial, they were in pretty decent places going into this downturn. Retail, there were already cracks going into this. I mean, they've been battling with e-commerce for years, right? E-commerce, yeah, like you said, it's still single digits out of total retail sales, but it's biting away, nibbling away at the bread and butter of the bricks and mortar retailers. And it's only going to increase, right? So you've had properties and landlords that for years, and retailers for that matter, that for years have been pivoting to account for e-commerce, right? When you think of some of these premier retail properties that have essentially made themselves a place, placemaking, you know, experiential retail, restaurants, someplace that you really want to go to as opposed to, oh, I have to go and pick up this stuff. You want to go there. That's like a day trip, right? And those are the ones that are going to do well coming out of this. Furthermore, a lot of those landlords are also the ones that are offering rent deferrals. So they will they're essentially guaranteeing themselves that they'll have tenants there when they reopen up the property. Whereas the landlords that haven't been able to make that pivot to battle e-commerce head on because they just haven't been able to invest in it. They're just not of that magnitude. They're also the ones, unfortunately, that aren't able to offer rent deferrals. And as a result, the retailers and their properties are going to be worse off because of cash flow issues, but Worse off because it's not a destination property to go to. They haven't intensified the use of it to capture foot traffic. So that's where you're going to have that have and have not bifurcation intensify on the retail side. And there really is, I mean, a world of pain for retailers coming down. The, I mean, they're already in a world of pain for many of them. And depending on how long this lasts and what the rebound looks like, that's where the problem is. I and mean, you start looking at how people return to work for 
retailers in the downtown cores. I mean, unfortunately, a staggered return to work for these office workers means a staggered return of consumers for them. So it'll take some time for their consumers just to come back, just to come back physically, not to mention the fact that a lot of consumers, I mean, there's been a ton of job losses, a lot of people, consumer confidence is really down, taking a hit. So just because they're back physically and they're willing to go out and be around other human beings again, they've gotten past that stigma, are they opening up their wallets? And that, I mean, we all know it's going to take some time for consumers to open up their wallets again. And I think it depends on how long we're we're in the self-quarantine world, but for sure our purchase patterns are changing. It's just to what extent do they change and and how does that impact retail? I mean, if anybody, if you want to do it, just go and Google, you know, Canadian retail bankruptcies. You almost, you lose track. Like I just pulled it up here, you know, from Pier 1 to Toys R Us to like, it just goes on and on and on. Jimboree, like the number of retail, and this is before COVID, right? They were were really, there were a lot of really struggling retailers. And so this is just, you know, hyper amplification of, you know, the struggles they were in. Yeah. And when everyone gets out of their, you know, their cabins and tries to get over their cabin fever at the end of this, I mean, do you want to go to buy a couple staples that you can uh, could have picked up online? Or do you want to go, you know, once you, you're comfortable being around humans, do you want to go to like a proper destination to actually, you know, experience something that's cool and interesting? Well, I'll, I'll, I've been telling my wife that I'm, I'm not cooking for the entire month after we get out of quarantine. I'm, all, I'm so sick and tired of cooking. And we're just starting this thing. I'm going to eat at restaurants. The nice thing is that my bank account's been waiting for my purge on restaurant eating for that month. Well, the economy but, thanks you in advance because that's the kind of, <laughs> you're the kind of consumer will need to get the economy kickstarted again. So yeah, seriously, seriously. <laughs> Good thing is warm weather. A good friend of mine was talking about trying to find a seat on a patio. Once this is all done and over with, where there isn't going to be an empty patio for months. Yeah. We're all just trying to enjoy not being locked in our houses. Is that a good segue to another asset class? Where do you want to go next? Multifamily? Sure. So being locked in your house? Yeah. <laughs> I guess we don't really need to touch on hospitality, right? Hospitality is really, really struggling. We'll just leave it at yeah. that, right? Okay. Yeah. I think that's uh, yeah yeah. So let's talk about multifamily. What impacts you're seeing COVID is having? Yeah, I think I mean the first thing everyone's talking about is you know non-payment of rent. So obviously that that's going to be a bit of an impact. And I think seventy seventy five percent of people paid their rent on time. I should say paid the rent on time on April first. So you know there's going to be some pain there as far as of rent in the short term. But where do things go in the long term? And and similar to a lot of the other asset types. For the most part, multifamily had exceptionally low vacancy rates across the country going into this. And kind of the name of the game was, you know, the build on the construction side, we're seeing the construction of high-end multifamily. And the idea behind that is, you know, you get some uh, tenants in place and they're likely higher on the income scale and potentially will move on to home ownership in a year or two. And then you can cycle that over and increase the rents again. And the problem right now is with the pain in the economy, job losses and what have you, there's probably a lot of people that are going to be putting off home purchases. First time home buyers are probably going to have to put off home purchases. So it'll take some time to for them to kind of get out of the multifamily, which in essence is a good news story for multifamily, right? You're having people that are delaying moving out, some people that might be forced to move back to multifamily because they cannot afford home ownership again. So there's there's some good news on that side in the sense that there will still be a ton of demand for space. And that's usually the scenario in downturns. Multifamily does quite well for a few years. Maybe not so much on the rent growth side, because it'll be really hard to, to push that up. But definitely on the uh, 
occupancy levels. So they will remain probably where they are for the long haul. Looking at, you know, kind of where you start seeing some of the weaknesses, I think similar to discretionary spending, if you're in a very high-end unit paying high-end rents, you probably might be looking at going into maybe a B-class multifamily building upon renewal to save a few bucks. If you were, if you were one of those people that were hit with uh, job losses or, you know, were furloughed for a while. So there's some issues with that as well, where you're probably going to see a lot of action. The hottest section of the multifamily side will be the B class for the next couple of years. But at the end of the day, I mean, we started with vacancy rates so low and we're just not building enough for the population growth that we're expecting in our major cities across Canada. And, and as a result, you're, you know, we expect vacancy to remain, well, quite low, lower than it should be. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, rental growth will kick back up as well as a result. You know, fortunately, the decision to allow above grade multifamily or apartment or condo development to continue is probably a good thing. I'm, I'm, somebody got that right, which is a little bit different than the other asset classes that are on a full development hiatus. Do you, I mean, it's it, this relationship often gets lost, but in my mind, you can't talk about apartment growth or rental growth without talking about employment levels and income levels. And I, I don't know if you see this in your reporting or some of the stuff that you, the economists kind of spit out, but how does COVID have an impact on income levels on the back end of this quarantine? Clearly, employment's got a, a challenge. Like I, I haven't seen the Canadian numbers. I saw an American projection of 25%, but it wasn't clear if that was permanent unemployment or just temporary unemployment. I don't know if there's a blur between the two of them. But do you have any sense kind of what income looks like when we get kind of back out of this quarantine world? Yeah. And I think the first part of that discussion has to do with where the unemployment rate goes, right? So going into this, we were at about 5.7% unemployment in uh, February of 2020. And most projections are calling for us to be above 10% by the end of the second quarter. So at some point in the next few months, we're above 10%. We saw the March unemployment numbers came out, million jobs lost there. And the more important part is where the job losses occurred, right? Predominantly, I mean, retail sector, more not the, you know, well-established type workforce. It's hitting the younger folks as well. So people 25 and below in that category are really getting hit. So that'll do two things. One, it's going to prevent people from buying homes, right? But in some instances, it may also lower demand for multifamily as well, because these people are out of work. Clearly, when they get back in, it's the employers that have the power. So incomes are probably not going to be comparable to where they were because there's a lot more people fighting for jobs. So income growth for those people that were adversely impacted is going to take a hit for sure. Merit increases you know, this year are not going to be robust for obvious reasons. They're not going to be rolling out all the packages to people on average. So rent growth is really going to be slow. Now, there is an anticipation that job growth will resume later this year. So I talked about unemployment hitting above 10% on average. If you look at all the economists' forecasts, by the end of the year, it's expected to be somewhere around 7.5-8% by the end of 2020. And then by the end of 2021, it's going to be back down to 6.5%. So we're seeing fast growth, but we're still going to be higher than where we started, right? So it creates some issues on household formation in the sense that if you have two roommates sharing space, they're probably not going to spin off into two different households. You know, uh, you know, I have enough money. I don't want a roommate anymore kind of discussion. They're probably going to be sitting with a roommate for another year or two if they're able to afford to still be out on their own. For those that are young enough and lost their jobs, they 
might be or probably will be going back to live with mom and dad for a bit as well until they get things in order. So that creates a bit of an issue on the demand side for multifamily, specifically because of a household formation. But you're balancing that out with some people, unfortunately, that have moved back from ownership into multifamily. And incredibly low vacancy across virtually every market in the, in the country, obviously, is, uh, is, is that is the lowest asset class in terms of vacancy? Absolutely. Yeah, probably going to have an impact on smaller markets as well. If you think, you know, there's more job losses in the smaller market. So once the, you know, again, once the self-quarantine is back and the economy is starting to go again, there's going to be some migration for just looking for jobs and probably means, you know, more people coming to the major urban centers, which means, you know, more demand and, you know, the challenge we have with supply already. So it'd be really interesting to see how that plays itself out over the next 18, 24 months. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with you. We talk about cap rates. I mean, as, as it will apply to uh, all the asset classes we just discussed, you know, where do you think they are now? And again, it's early days and what we'll see for the rest of the year in terms of uh, cap rates. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's where the big question mark is. Obviously, deal activity is negligible now. The deals that are going through are ones that were penned prior to the downturn. So we're probably going to see a lull in activity in the next quarter at the very least. And so some of those data points are going to be hard to come by. And some of them that you do come by, if there is a cap rate released, it will, I mean, it'll probably reflect a little more distress, right? If you're forced to sell in a downturn, you're not getting the best return there. But over the next few years, I mean, when we're looking at our forecast for price per square foot for cap rates as well, we don't see too big of an impact. I mean, when we compare the forecast that we were looking at prior to coronavirus and now the new ones that were updated afterwards, we don't see a huge impact. Now, I will qualify that with the fact that our economic downturn isn't as deep as some of the major banks are predicting right now. And the bounce back is just as strong. So potentially, if this is a a bit longer of a downturn and impacts tenants more than we're expecting to impact, you're probably going to see some pain on the rent side which you know impacts your income and, and so forth. So, And then pricing will, will be reflected of that. So right now, if you were going to ask me, we don't see too big of an impact. Our forecasts, I mean, if you're looking at it from a few feet away from the screen, it looks like a straight line over the next four years. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, summarizing kind of the conversations we've had, you know, on the office side, there might be a little cap rate decompression. I think it really depends on how the whole supply demand thing works itself out with number of employees per square foot, that kind of stuff. On the retail side, we're already seeing cap rate decompression before COVID. I think that this is going to amplify that, but we'll continue to see that. On the industrial side, I think, you know, again, with all the conversations that we've just mentioned, probably some cap rate compression in the industrial space. It was already, you know, I've been a little bit high in comparison to other asset classes. So I expect it to continue to go down. And then on the single, on the multifamily side, it's probably flat, right? Would you yeah. say? I mean, it's hard to go below sort of three, three and a half as it already <laughs> is. I mean, you can go lower, of course, but it's interesting to see. I, you know, I'll be watching that closely. Again, like you, it sounds like CoStar has got a bit of an optimistic projection, but I think I'd, I'd prefer that than that we're going to be in <laughs> quarantine for two years and never getting out of here. So, yeah, we try and look at different scenarios as well, but the base case is decent, right? It's not, yeah. it's not cataclysmic because of the fact that yes, it's a deep Q2 recession, but Q3 things start coming back. And it's really that strength of the rebound that that we're really starting to pay attention to. I mean, is it going to be a V-shaped recession or is it going to be, everyone's coining it like a Nike swoosh and what does that slope look like on the rebound? And that's that's where we got to start trying to fine tune the forecast going forward. Yeah, it probably depends on how what kind of phasing they do for us to come back to work and that kind of thing too, right? How quickly they can do that. 
So Roy, we definitely thank you for all of, you know, all your insights, all the asset class coverage we've got. Just as our kind of closing thoughts before we let you go, what would you say to the listeners about how they should be looking at their tactics and strategy going forward? Yeah, so I think, you know, prior to this, when the economy was going great and all the commercial real estate asset classes were doing really wonderful, you know, you couldn't make a wrong decision. You put money in anything you're making money on, pretty much everything, unless you really go off the tracks. Now, you probably need to be a lot more selective of what you're picking up, really take a critical look at your portfolio, look at what you want to dispose of. And at that point, when you're starting to look at your portfolio, when you're starting to look at things that you're looking to pick up, you really need the data to back that up. It's so much more important to have the data now that we're coming out of this or when we come out of this than a year ago when everything was going great. So data is going to be your best friend. The analytics are going to be your best friend. So me being director of market analytics, it's a shameless plug for myself because us analysts are who you need around. <laughs> director of market analytics or director of marketing. You know, that was, that was an excellent uh, segue. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> But uh, Roly, I, I want to thank you again for coming on. This has been super informative and we'd love to have you again on soon because everything is kind of, you know, moving at a rapid pace here around us. We want to thank First National for powering the podcast. We definitely want to thank the Real Estate Forums for setting this up with Roly. This is part of the, the Real Estate Forum series. So thank you to them. And as a closer, thanks again, Roly. Thank you, Roly. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.